Well, good morning again, and I'm glad that you're all here with us today. We are studying the book of Isaiah together, so if you would open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, we are in chapter 48 today. Chapter 48. Now, as we begin, I'm going to read one verse out of Jude which is Jude verse 5, and I'm going to read it at the beginning, and I'm going to read this verse again at the very, very end of the sermon today, and I hope that at its first reading, uh, okay, you understand that for what it is, but I hope that when we read it at the end of the sermon, that it will come to light in a whole new context and full of rich meaning for you, okay? I tell you, it did for me this week, and so I hope it does for you as well. So Jude verse 5 says, now I want to read it slow so you hear it. Jude verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although once you fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Listen to what it just said. I want to remind you, you once knew this, you fully grasped it in your heart is what he's saying. You you fully used to understand this, but let me just remind you. Jesus saved the people from the land of Egypt. Is that connection coming through? But afterward, he destroyed all those who did not believe. Do you hear that? Who did it? Who did it? Good, very good. Jesus saves. Jesus destroyed. And he says, I want to remind you of that. Got it? Isaiah 48. Yeah, got to look good. Got to look good. Thanks, Shane. <laughs> I did a lot of moving around today, yeah. The worst is when I come up and my collar looks like this and no one says anything. And Amanda says, you know, your collar was up the whole time. Yeah, thanks, Sherry. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay, Isaiah 48. Is everyone there? Okay. We're beginning in verse uh, 12 today. So let's look there. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. So let's stop right there. What we're reading here so far, and we're going to make it through the text pretty quick this morning, and so just go with me. Um, A lot of what we're going to hear in these first several verses is going to be a reiteration of what has already been spoken through Isaiah up to this point, but it's a reiteration on purpose, okay? So uh, we're going to touch on it, but it doesn't need as full of an explanation because we, luckily, here's the benefit of walking through the book uh, consecutively, right? 
is that when we come upon a new theme, well, it's not actually new to us, is it? Because we've already understood that theme up until this point. So we can touch on it and understand it and just take it for what it is rather than having to spend the whole time on that, right? So we understand it. So when he says, listen to me, Jacob and Israel, whom I called, and then what does he do? He establishes his position as the sovereign Lord of all creation. And haven't we covered this already? So he says, I'm the first, I'm he, I'm the first, I'm the last, my right hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. And when I call to them, they stand forth together. And that's very significant right here. So just think about, have you, have you gone outside now that it's dark at, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon or whenever it gets dark, have you gone outside and, and now you, you have this opportunity to look up into the sky and you see the stars? Have you done that? You should, if you haven't. I, I, uh, I, I thought for a period of time, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I, I thought for a period of time I was going to be an astronomer. Now, please understand there's a difference between astrology and astronomy. Okay, I did not want to be an astrologer. I wanted to be an astronomer. And so I took several astronomy classes uh, when I first started college before I went to Bible college. And uh, because I had a fascination with the stars. And I loved looking up into the sky and seeing the stars and... Uh, uh, you should do that. You know why? Because they are God's creation and they're beautiful. God created them in beauty for us to see and marvel at his work. But listen to what it says. When God told the constellations to form, guess what they did? They formed. Did they have any other option but to form? And did they, have, did they form exactly like he intended? So isn't that amazing that when we look out into the skies and we see God's handiwork. The stars are just how he wants them to be. Look at what God has created and marvel at it. We should. Remember who he is. Because when God called them, they stood fast together. He assembled them and they assembled exactly as he intended. Now that also says something about who God is, doesn't it? It says something about his might and his power over his creation. It also says something about how God loves beauty because aren't the stars beautiful this says a lot about who God is so when God called the stars they assembled right away none of them delayed I'm pressing that point for a reason because then listen to what he says next verse 14 assemble all of you do you hear it when God called the stars boom they assembled but when God calls you, assemble and listen. Hang on, I got to do something first real quick. Let me, uh, let, I'll, I'll get with it here soon. Just give me some time. Or what, I, what, what'd you say? I can't make that out. I have ears, but I can't really hear you. I have eyes, but I can't see you. Do you see the vast difference that immediately is being called between God's creation and between God's blessed creation, the one that was created to reflect his image above all creation. And when he calls to that, and he says, assemble and listen, where are they? Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? Now the pronouns are starting to create a little bit of confusion, I think. At least they did for me on my initial reading because there's lots of pronouns here. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? What, what is all that referring back to? It's referring back to something, right? Do we know what it is? Well, I think we do. Uh, all of you is Israel 
And who among them has declared these things? I believe that's a reference back to uh, 4713. You are wearied with many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens and gaze at the stars to make known what shall come upon you. Do you hear that? So there were those in Babylon. Remember, we talked about the origins of, of astronomy. Uh, we, we talked about how they would divide the stars and that the division of the stars would declare to them the things that were to come. At least they believed that to be the case. And so now he's reflecting on that and saying, who among them, who among those who can divide the stars, who among the stars has ever declared to you what I'm declaring to you? And the answer is, none of them. They can't. They can't declare to you what I'm declaring to you. So now you are so ready. This is, this, is, this is good because he's saying you're so ready to seek out counsel from astrology, but you're not ready to assemble and listen to me. I wonder how many of us are so ready to hear counsel from other things other than the word of God. But when it comes to hearing counsel from the word of God, we say, I don't know. We don't even seek it out. We like seeking out counsel other places because I think there's a better chance that what we hear we're going to like better because it's, it's going to be more, uh, well, the answer is flawed and sinful and it's going to appeal to more of what I want to hear. There's less chance of me being overwhelmed and convicted and frustrated if I just seek counsel out somewhere else other than the word, right? The people were so ready to seek out counsel from the stars, but God said, don't you know who put those stars there? Me. Who among them has declared these things? None of them. So listen to me. Listen to my voice. I'm calling all of you. Assemble and listen. Will you listen to me? So do you hear the sense of urgency here that God is calling the people to listen? But remember that it's coming from Isaiah. And what did God tell Isaiah back in chapter 6? You're going to keep speaking to them, but they're not going to listen. That's that's hard. But here's the voice of God. He says, listen. So here's what he says. So listen to what? I guess is the question, right? Listen, listen. I'm calling you to assemble and listen. So here's what God has to say. The Lord loves him. Who is him? Right, another pronoun. We'll, we'll, we'll clarify. He shall perform all his purpose on Babylon. His arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him. He will prosper in his way. What? Who are we talking about? Who is all the him and the I and the... Because things are changing here. You have to go back to uh, where God is talking and, I, and really in chapter 45 because... What we're finding from about chapter 40 up until this point is one extended theme of God revealing to Israel his plan through Cyrus. (laughs) Chapter 45 is the climax of that. It's very specific. God is calling Cyrus of the Persian Empire to come and take over the Babylonian Empire and then release them from exile to go back to Israel to rebuild the temple, right? So all this is happening. And so God is reiterating again, he shall fulfill and perform all his purpose on Babylon. So what's interesting is that God uses Cyrus's purpose and intention to accomplish his own purpose and intention. Do you see that? 
So Cyrus, what does he want to do? He wants to conquer Babylon. As, as anyone who's ever played Risk knows. That's the goal. Conquer all. Cyrus believed that he was playing a real-life game of Risk. He has taken it all. So it was in his heart to conquer all nations. But what he didn't realize is that God is the one who formed him, who named him from before birth, that he would desire such things so that he might be a chosen instrument of God for his purposes. Isn't that unbelievable? Isn't that unbelievable that God did such a thing? The Lord loves him. And he shall perform his purpose on Babylon. It's going to happen. There's a variant here that actually, if you're wondering about that, loves him. There, there is a variant here. I think it has some warrant to, uh, he is the Lord's chosen. The Lord has chosen him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon. His arm shall be against the Chaldeans, that, that is the people of Babylon. And I, even I, that is God, has spoken and I've called him. And so when I call him, guess what he's going to do? He's going to go do what I told him to do, just like the stars. When I say go, he's going. When I say assemble, he's assembling. He's doing what I called him to do. And it always circles back to, now you, my chosen people, whom I love and whom I have called by my name. You even call yourself by the name Israel. What are you doing when I speak? What are you doing when I call? Are you listening to my voice? All Because we're seeing the inanimate creation bowing to God's voice. We see pagan kings bowing to God's voice. And where are God's people? Deaf and blind. What a, a crazy picture for us to imagine. We would think that out of, all, out of all people, the people of God would be those most attentive to the word of God, right? You would think. Is this the case that we find? It's not. So... God is telling them, remember, I'm going to accomplish all my purpose. I've told you that you're going to go into Babylonian captivity, but I'm going to deliver you. I've told you all this. So God is, is planning this. And here's, here's the redemption plan. It's just really three points that I, I, could, I would summarize it in three points. Here's God's plan of redemption through Cyrus, that the people will be held captive in Babylon, right? You know, that's, that's still a coming thing. Remember that we have Isaiah's ministry about 741 to 701 BC. And it's not until really the battle of Nineveh, 612, that Babylon, or that, that, that Babylon rises up to power. Excuse me for stuttering. That Babylon rises up to power to overtake the Assyrians. And then it's between 605, 597 BC that Babylon becomes the great world power. Where are we in this timeline if we're Isaiah's original audience? A hundred years previous. Right? So he's saying, you're going to be held captive in Babylon. It's going to happen. But God will raise up for you uh, 70 years later, uh, Cyrus, to be against the Babylonians and he will overtake them. And then at that point, he will prosper in his way because God is at work in all of this and he will deliver you and you'll come back to where you are now in Jerusalem. Okay? 
One of the things I want you to be thinking about as we work through the text, like I said, we're gonna go through it pretty quick, but what I want you to be thinking about is if this is so far in the future of what significance does this have for Isaiah's original audience? You ever considered that? How were the people of that time to, why is Isaiah prophesying at that time? Why not wait until the the ministry of, of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, to tell all these things? Why so far in advance when Cyrus is not even born yet? When the Babylonians have not even been raised up to power yet? Why so far in advance are we hearing all these things? Of what purpose did that serve? We know one of those reasons, as we talked about last week, one of those reasons is he told them in advance because they didn't want to say later on, see, we asked our idols and our idols delivered us. So God said, I'm going to tell you way in advance so that it's impossible for you to say later on, see, our idols delivered us. And God's saying, no, no, no. Before you are even held captive, before those foreign powers even arise, I'm telling you what's going to happen. So you can never refute it. So your ears might be plugged now, but understand that I told you before it even happened. Our God is a good, powerful, loving, merciful God. Do you see that on display even right here in communicating with his people that had plugged their own ears to the voice of their creator? And how he so desires this intimacy with his people, a people that would bow down to him and, call and come. And when he says come, he's like, you come and you listen because you're eager to hear what your God has to say. That's the people that God wants. It's what he desires people who are eager to hear from him. But instead, we hear like in Isaiah 46, 12, listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off. That's, that's the kind of language that we get instead. If the people are not delivered by God, then they will be destroyed by God's wrath for their disobedience. I just want to say that again because it is God who is delivering them into exile. Why? Because they were a disobedient people, right? And if it had not been for his namesake, he would have cut them off completely. Isn't that what he said? And who would cut them off completely? Who would destroy them? God would destroy them. So God delivers them so that God would not destroy them. Are you starting to all of a sudden hear something that sounds like something else? God is delivering a people so that God would not destroy them. Does that sound like a merciful God? Also sounds like a God who is very much in control of his creation. Those who are delivered by God's grace are purified for him and his own purposes. That's what we read last week. Remember, he's sending his people where? To the furnace of affliction. All for what purpose? Why is God sending his people into a furnace of affliction? To purify them. Now, what a fire does is it purifies. The fire does not consume them. That's, that's amazing. But it purifies them. Now, some of them are cut off, but what does God hold on to? A remnant. Chosen by grace. 
they were not destroyed. Instead, the remnant are purified by the furnace of affliction. For whose purpose? Why? He said last week, we looked at the text right in 48. You can look at verse 9, for example, or verse 11. Why did God do this? For my name's sake, I defer my anger for me, for my purposes. Not because you deserve it. It's not because of you, don't you see? It's because of him. Your salvation is not because of you. It's because of God. It's not for you, it's for him. Because if it were for you, if it were because of you, salvation would be something you deserved. Is salvation something we deserve? Is salvation something that Israel deserved? Did they deserve to be delivered from Babylonian captivity miraculously and loved and purified? Did they deserve that? Those who plugged their ears at God's voice those who, when he said, assemble and listen, and they said, they didn't say anything because they didn't hear him say it. And then he says, verse 16, draw near to me, hear this, from the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. And from the time it came to be, I have been there. That's a, that's a reiteration. We know that. But then look at what's next. And now the Lord has sent me in his spirit. Another pronoun that we don't know who the me is. That's kind of, I understand that that's a bit confusing. And I believe I understand what's being said here. Me and his spirit is an interjection from Isaiah himself. Back in Isaiah 6, what did God say? Whom shall I send to be my messenger to speak, right? And Isaiah said, send me. So it only makes sense that this says, and now the Lord has sent me and his spirit. Because it is only by the spirit of God that he's able to say what it says at the beginning of verse 17, which is what? Thus says the Lord right? It is only by the Spirit of God that anyone can say, thus says the Lord. So it is only by God sending Isaiah as God's voice by his Spirit that he says to them, listen to him. Listen to what he's saying to you. But don't we hear Isaiah's struggle? Can you imagine being in that situation of having this burden and joy of the very word of God on your heart and all you want, remember how excited he was, send me, send me, I want to go. I want to talk to the people. And so he goes and he gives them this grand message of deliverance. And he, why don't you, why aren't you understanding? Why, don't, why aren't you hearing? Why aren't you believing? Why are you continuing to go after idols? Why are you continuing to look to astronomy and sorcery? Why can't you hear me? And so he says, so the Lord has sent me and his spirit. Listen, it's not me. It's his spirit going through me. It's a spirit working through me and he wants you to hear his voice. 
And so this is good. I, I believe that he gets in verse 17. In 17, he really gets to the point of all that he wants Israel to hear when he says, gather and listen, assemble. So yes, I'm bringing Cyrus. That plan will be fulfilled. But listen, listen to what the Lord God says. And I think you hear in here, if you can hear it with me, you can hear a sense of Isaiah's struggle that the people wouldn't listen. So listen to what it says. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit and who leads you in the way you should go. Pause right there because verse 18, it's about to, things are about to get different. The Lord has sent me and his spirit to teach you, to tell you what he says, right? It is he, the Lord, who teaches you to profit, that is to have success, and it is the Lord who leads you in the way you should go. The issue for Israel is that they were seeking out other counsel. We've already talked about this. Didn't I tell you there was going to be some reiteration here? The people of Israel were not listening to the voice of God and how to profit and how to have success. They were listening to the voice of their neighbors, to the nations surrounding them, to ungodliness. And so again, I believe this theme has come back to us that I, I think we need to hear and put into practice you understand that the masses who give you counsel are not speaking the word of God into your life. They're speaking what they believe to be right into your life. We need to be very, very careful with the instruction that we're given. We need to be very, very careful when someone says, this is how you see success in life. Follow this five-fold path and you will have success. Here are the 10 steps to, to success as a Christian or, what, or, or as a person. You're just taking this advice from the world of how to be successful. How do we define success, by the way? What is success? When have you arrived and you said, I am happy with what I've accomplished in my life? Actually, I'm going to make a list today of all my accomplishments because, I mean, this is going to be good. So number one, I was born and I was good looking. That's number one. That's what I, number two, I am super talented. So number two, I'm really talented. Number three, uh, I, I have a lot of money. That's, uh, that's, you know, I was successful. I have a lot of money. So that's, that's it. You know, I managed to marry someone. I managed to have children. I have a job. I have a house. I influence people. I, you name whatever it is you want to name that you think is success. If the answer is not, I have recognized that I'm a sinner. And that God is so much greater than me. He is holy. And I deserve his wrath for disobedience. But yet he has saved me and I want to live my life in service to him. If, if you've done anything other than that, then you've not had success in life. Because success, what is it? What, what is it to gain money or status or a family or to have influence or to write books or to be, whatever it is, you realize that none of that is success. Because if you do not have Christ and a humble heart, what is coming for you is wrath when you die. What is coming upon you is the consequence for sin when you die. So what is success? Godliness, faithfulness, humility, 
basically the opposite of what our world tells us. Do you see that? Confidence in who God is and what he has accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you and leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you would have paid attention to my commandments. But they didn't. Because then, listen to what would have happened to you if you had listened. Your peace would have been like a river. Your righteousness would have been like the waves of the sea. What, get that picture, by the way. They hit over and over and over, and that's how your righteousness comes. It's wave. After, it never ends. You have righteousness upon righteousness upon righteousness. Your offspring would have been like the sand and the descendants like its grains. Their name would never have been cut off or destroyed from before me. What a grim picture of God's people. A people who didn't listen. A people who didn't pay attention. I'd like to, at this point, just draw your attention to a passage in Hebrews chapter 2. So just hold your place there in Isaiah and flip over with me for a moment to Hebrews chapter 2. As you're flipping there, I just want to remind you and encourage you, if you're new to navigating your Bible and you don't know where the book of Hebrews is, then just look in the table of contents and it will tell you what page it's on. It's okay. We, we have to learn. If you want to get those little things, right, that stick in there that tell you where the books of the Bible are, then get those because that's helpful, right? Do we want to learn together or the word? That's good. If your neighbor doesn't know where it is, would you help him find it? This is a good thing. So are we at Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 2, look at it with me. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest what will happen. We drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and Listen, here it is. We're, we're getting to it. And it's starting to get me a little excited. Okay, so listen to, how, listen to the connections that are drawn in, from the text. The message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. As we read in our Old Testament scriptures and we read about Israel, is there ever a transgression of the people that does not go punished? Does God always have his way? Now, sometimes he says, now I'm going to do this and that's going to make things right. Or if you do this, that's going to make, but it, it always comes to pass. It always has to be paid for. When the people rebelled, the people were not obedient. You, you think, about, think about the big things that happened, okay? Like the masses dying from serpents in the wilderness. Right? people being struck dead from plagues. Out of disobedience, Moses and the, that generation not being able to go to the promised land. You realize that was, that was God's discipline on them. 
So what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that we better pay attention to all that we've been reading about how God operates with his people. And isn't that actually what we've been doing throughout the book of Isaiah as we've been learning? This, okay, I thought God operated this way with his people, but that's being refined. This is actually the way that God operates with his people, and we're seeing it clear as day. And so the author of Hebrews helps us to see that. He helps us to see that same thing, that we better pay closer attention to all that we've been hearing and reading about Because every transgression and disobedience receives a just retribution. And how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Right? Has God changed? He's like, oh, I mean, yeah, I, I used to be real, you know, straight-laced kind of guy. I, I, was, I was a little rough with my people. You know, I said, you know, assemble and listen. And I expected them to assemble and listen. But I'm not like that anymore. I've, I've changed. I've grown. You know, I've matured. Does God change or grow or mature? Or is he 100% perfect always from the beginning? Does God gain knowledge so as to become a better God? No. He is always the same God. And isn't that actually comforting? He doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his character. So we, as God's people, need to pay attention. Does God want his people to pay attention and listen? Yes. So we do that. We try to pay attention. Lest we drift away. Drift away. I actually, the other day I was talking about spiritual drift. I actually wasn't even considering this passage right here, but here it is, right? Uh, There's the spiritual drift, right? What happens? You you just, I didn't mean to. Isn't that how drift happens? I, I didn't, drift is, I just, I used to be over here, and now just a little bit at a time. Now all of a sudden, I'm not where I was. What happened? I wasn't paying attention, and I've drifted. Have you drifted? What is God's call to all of us should we find ourselves in a place of drift to pay attention? to perk up and listen to your God. That's what he calls you to. Could it be that simple? Just to open your ears to what God would have to say to you. So he continued, I better finish that out. It was declared at first by the Lord. So now he's talking about this great salvation. And if if we neglect hearing about the gospel, do you think really we're gonna escape? You saw what God did. And should we be able to escape? God bore witness by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. And in this, we don't see people escape. But we see God's true dealings with the world and with his people. He says, if you had, we're going to go back to Isaiah here and uh, finish out our text. But he says, Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then you would have peace like a river, and your righteousness would be like the waves of the sea. I'd I'd just like to make mention of that, because I don't want to read that wrong. What God does not say here is, if you would simply be obedient to the commands of God, in that sense, 
an adherence to uh, rules, right, then you would have had righteousness. Because that's not what's being said, except for the fact that the law does hold them accountable to where they are wrong, right? So you can read all about that over in Romans chapter 3. I'll just read a few verses for you. Uh, and we're going to look at the last couple of verses here in, in, in Isaiah 48. But it says, beginning in verse 21 of Romans 3, but the righteousness of God has been manifested, how? By your adherence to the law and commandments? It's not what it says. It says the righteousness of God that you so desire, that you so need, has been manifested apart from the law. It hasn't come through the law. It has come apart from the law. And the prophets bear witness to it. What's Isaiah? Somebody said it. Linda, good job, Linda. Isaiah is a prophet. So in other words, what am I saying? Isaiah is bearing witness to the fact that your righteousness is not about a strict adherence to a set of rules and laws. And this is not what your God requires of you. But instead, he has manifested righteousness apart from the law. And how has he done that? The righteousness of God through... Oh, man, I, I really thought we were going to get that one. If we don't, I'm going to give you another opportunity. I'm looking for a fill-in-the-blank, okay? Do you know the word? I hope you know the word. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So how does righteousness come? By adherence to commands and laws and rules? No, it only comes one way. There's only one way to get righteousness. Do you know what that is? Faith in Jesus Christ. And to that we say, how else could we do it? How else could we get a righteous standing before God if he had not intervened and rescued us? Right? Our God is a good God. He is a merciful God. And he gives us all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Okay, so the last few verses here. Uh, <clears throat> so your offspring would have been like the sand, your descendant like its grains. You would never have been cut off or destroyed. Verse 20. So he says, go out from Babylon, free from Chaldea, and declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth and say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. God anticipates that his people, even at this time, will rejoice and declare that God has redeemed his people because they're looking forward to a time when God would act, right? And they're looking forward to a time when God would act in faith. That's what he wants. Trust what I'm gonna do. God is always looking for faith. God is always looking for faith, belief. He believed the word of God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God is always looking for us to believe, to trust what he has said. So then it only makes sense that verse 21 would be there. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made the water to flow from the rock and he split the rock and the water gushed out. That only makes sense that that would be there, right? 
unless you're like me and you think, no, I don't understand at all why that's there, actually. That seems very, very, very out of place. What is that? Okay? Why is that there? Notice that Isaiah is drawing here on a previous story of what has happened to Israel in the past. Okay? And he's saying, just like that, God is doing that again. And we're looking at what God did in Isaiah's day and saying God is going to do that just like he did it then, right? So Isaiah was doing to a past event what we're doing today to a past event. Does that make sense what I'm saying? And so we reflect back on God, how, op- how, how God operates with his people and we rejoice in who God is and what he does. But what is this story? Um, uh, this is found in Exodus 17, And so I'll read some of it. I'll summarize some of it. But here's what happened. Isaiah is referencing back to when the people were led out of Egyptian captivity, right? There for a long time. They're led out of Egyptian captivity miraculously, and the waters parted, and they crossed through on the other side. And they had a long journey through the water, by the way. Pretty much no matter where they crossed that, they had a long journey through water. They had a long time to reflect on the fact that they were walking and water was on either side of them, which is a crazy, miraculous situation. They get on the other side, and as soon as they're all over, the water crashes back in and defeats their enemies. Miraculously. Great story. That would produce a people of faith, you would think. But it didn't. So now they're in the wilderness, and they're wandering around. By the, by the, the wilderness here, we, please don't think like trees and you know, forest and stuff. That's not, that's not the right wilderness area. The wilderness area here is rocky, desert land, right? Mountainous. And so here they are wandering around in this arid place, and they're thirsty, and they're hungry. And so they complain, and they say, will you please uh, give us some food? Uh, because why did you lead us out of Egypt anyway? Because at least we had food there and at least we had water there and everything was fine for the most part. Why did you bring us out here anyway? And so God, out of his mercy, what does he do? He provides them with food and drink in the wilderness. A grumbling, complaining people, he satisfies Why would you do that? Because this is the nature of our God. That's can we can we wrap our minds around the complex character of who God really is? He is far more merciful than we ever thought. He is far more gracious than we could ever think. But I believe also his severity and wrath are far more than we could ever think. Both are true both exist and so the people grumbled and then so you know remember how they got the water is is a great story god said take that staff that you parted the nile with you know when i did that great miraculous thing take it and smack that rock and when you smack that rock it's going to crack and water is going to gush out and you can drink it and be satisfied okay we're going to end together this morning in 1 Corinthians 10. It's good. It's good. What's about, what we're going to see here is, is so good because you would think that if I were a really, really good, you're going to think here in just a second that I'm like a really, really good planner. You know, I planned this way out in advance and, you know, that it would land today, and I didn't. Uh, God is just gracious. 
So just look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. So there's, again, our reminder to uh, be mindful of all that God has done. That our fathers were all under the cloud and they passed through the sea. We just talked about that. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. What, what was that? Manna. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. And what was that? That was the water out of the rock. It was amazing. And they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was... The rock was... Christ. What satisfied their thirst? Jesus Christ satisfied them. I, I hope you're experiencing what I experienced, which is the consistency of God in His Word and how Christ is never absent. Do you see it? He is never absent. The prophets proclaimed this was to come. And in the stories that really did happen, you know, because that was a real, we believe that was a real historical event, that he really smacked the rock and water really came out. And the water that satisfied them, the rock itself was Jesus Christ satisfying a grumbling and complaining people that he loved. And, and then it continues. That wasn't, the, that wasn't the strongest connection, by the way, that I was so excited about. I think we understand that. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. God just satisfied them, but he wasn't pleased with them. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Listen to what the next sentence says. These things took place as examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. Isaiah got it. He said the people are desiring evil just like they did then, right? Isaiah got the connection. Do we get the connection? Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people uh, sat down to eat and drink. They rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual, sexual immorality as some of them did. 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents or grumble as some of them did and were destroyed. What happens when you disregard Christ he destroys. Right? These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So both are true. It really happened in history, but it also really happened as an example to us. Do you see the example in the text today and in the people of Israel? Do you see the example that Isaiah is highlighting? Don't be like them. Isaiah was saying to the people then, 
you, people of God, don't be like the people there were in the wilderness. You all know the stories. The people were miraculously saved, but God was not pleased with them, and so they were destroyed. Don't be like them. These things were happened to them as an example. They were written down for our instruction, our instruction. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you might be able to endure it. So therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak these as to sensible people. You're sensible. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the, body, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, and we all partake of the same bread. So then there is a connection between the rebellion of the people of God throughout history and the people seeking idolatry and not listening to their God and straying from their God in the Lord's Supper. Or did you not see it? Did you see it? All of this is connected to the fact that we are connected to Christ by his body and his blood, and we all partake of the same body. We all partake of the same blood. How is it then that there is division among us and that we are not all seeking to be obedient to our Lord together? If we are all partaking of the same blood and the same body, if we all have the same Lord, then why are we not all obedient to that Lord? These things happened as an example for us. We have ears to hear by the Spirit. We have eyes to see. See it. Flee from idolatry. That's what the text is calling us to do. For hundreds of years, thousands of years, the people of God have been told, flee from idolatry and be obedient and listen to your God alone. We need to hear that. If we think we've ever arrived at a place where we don't need to hear that, we think we stand. But you better listen up because you're about to fall. And that's what the text has told us. If anyone thinks he's, stand, if anyone thinks he's fine, I don't need to hear this. This is beyond me. You need to listen up and listen to what God is saying to you in the word and saying that our hearts have not yet come to full obedience under Christ's lordship in our lives. But God desires this from you. Now I speak in general terms today because I don't know everyone's particular situation in everyone's life and you know that you have situations in your life that you have not yet submitted to the lordship of Christ, yes? And is God satisfied with that? Isn't that really the question? What is success? What is your goal in life? What is your aim? To be obedient to your God? I hope that's your goal and your aim. This is what God calls you to today. And he wants you to see these stories as real history, but also as examples to us for our instruction. So as we approach the Lord's Supper today, we're going to go back if you're new with us, even uh, months new, 
which is not so new anymore. But if you've been here with us for a while, you take it in the Lord's Supper, uh, it's not always the way that we've uh, practiced this together. Uh, we, we started doing that during, uh, you know, the whole sickness thing. Uh, so we're going to go back to how we originally were participating in the Lord's Supper because of the symbolism that exists. And the Lord's Supper is a symbolic meal, right? I mean, if it's not symbolic, what is it? If, if the Lord's Supper is not symbolic, are, are you taking the Lord's Supper today to be blessed by God? Can eating and drinking stuff from Walmart get you blessed? We got a totally different picture of the gospel if you think that's what's going to happen here today. So we eat and we drink because this is a symbolic memorial meal of what God has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. And it reminds us that we all participate in the one body and the one blood of Christ together. It is the great equalizer. We are all the same. We are all the same because we all need the blood of Christ. We all need the body of Christ. We all need it. We all bow down to him in lordship. We all desire with everything that we have to be obedient to him. And the Lord's Supper helps us with that. Isn't it amazing that 1 Corinthians 10 is where he brings up this story about Israel and their disobedience. And where is our primary passage for teaching and instruction on the Lord's Supper? 1 Corinthians 11. You know, the text that I normally read during the Lord's Supper, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. I can't commend you in this. You know that text I normally read? That's in 1 Corinthians 11. And the text I just read about the spiritual rock that is Christ was 1 Corinthians 10. There is a very strong connection here with recalling the people of Israel and their disobedience and to us recentering our hearts and our minds on the gospel in taking the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper is meant to function as a memorial that we declare, we declare that God has redeemed his people. Isn't that what God was calling the people to in, in uh, Isaiah 48 that we just read? Declare this, shout it with joy. Shout what with joy? That God has redeemed his people. Don't you know that was talking about us? The great miraculous workings of God and salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what we have to celebrate. And obedience to him is how we follow. Right? I say this to you. you if you give me just a second here, I want to tell you that the reason I preach as I do, which I understand may be a little different, the reason I preach as I do is because I believe that what the word says is true and I believe that there is nothing more important in this entire world in your entire life that you need to hear. I think there is nothing more important that I need to hear. So there is nowhere I have to be. There is nowhere I have to go and I fully believe that there is no better place for you to go than to be here right now because this is what you need. The word is what you need. The community of the saints of God is what you need. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of this, right? Why are we all here? Because we all drink of the same blood 
and we all eat of the same body and that is what sustains us throughout our whole life. What sustains you? Christ sustains me, just like Christ has always sustained his people, right? What sustains you through this life? Anything, I don't know, take whatever supplements you want, right? Drink all the teas that you want, I don't know. I, I like tea, actually, I drink a lot of tea. But nothing is gonna sustain you if God himself is not sustaining you, nothing. And there is no better word for you to hear than the very word of God. I want to tell you that because you are not told that anywhere else in this world. You are told to disregard it, to think of something better, to do something different with your life, to focus on other things, to focus on the problems of the world, to focus on politics, to focus on relationships, to focus on whatever it else. Something is robbing you of your focus and devotion. Do you know what that's called? Idolatry. Flee from idolatry and give your heart's full attention and devotion to the Lord. So we take the Lord's Supper. What is the Lord's Supper meant to do? The Lord's Supper does three things for us that we have to keep in mind today. I want you to look back as the text calls us to do. Look back at what God has done. And isn't that what we've been doing all morning? Looking back at all that God has done, all of God's salvation history, all that he has accomplished. God is a good God and he has delivered us. Shout it, proclaim it with joy. You have been delivered from the greatest enemy that there is, sin and death. You have been delivered. There is nothing else that can happen to you if you have faith in Christ. But if you don't, you will be destroyed. As Jude tells us, the people he once delivered for those who disregarded him. They were destroyed. There is the great warning, the kindness and severity of our God on display. Come to him, he is a good God. Do not flee from him, he is a severe God, right? So we look back at all that God has done. We look forward to all that God will do when he comes back for us to redeem his people. There's no works not done that, you know. He's coming back for us to redeem us. Do you think he's going to do it? Do you think when he says, time end, what do you think happens? It's probably going to end. When? After he says, they're going to delay a little bit, you know, it's like a little lag. Or does it happen right when he says and his timing is perfect? It's going to happen right when he says, no sooner nor later. So it calls us to look forward at what God will do, but it also calls us to look inward as Paul calls us to do. And this is very important. As you drink of the, the grape juice here, which is symbolic of the blood of Christ, you have to be thinking, I am drinking this blood which shows that I participate in the blood of Christ, which he shed for me. Does my life reflect that, that I have been purchased by blood? Or does it not? Does my life reflect the fact that a Savior died for me and gave his own body for me and now I live my life in full obedience to him and his full lordship? Does my life reflect that? So you see that the Lord's Supper necessarily calls you to reflect inward. And what should you do with that? Should the Lord reveal to you your sin because he is gracious? Then you 
Confess your sin to him. Say to God that sin is sin. Just admit it. Be honest with yourself. Confront your own self with your sin, right? Just be honest with him. He already knows. Tell him that your sin is sin. Admit it. And then pledge your allegiance to him fully and only. All of your heart. Bow down before him. That's what he wants you to do. And then come and take the Lord's Supper and rejoice that this is reminding you that you have forgiveness. So the Lord's Supper should not run you off. I know for some of you, maybe it has in the past. Well, it's a Lord's Supper day. I don't know, it's awkward. You know, I'm probably not gonna take it because I have a stiff neck and I know that I'm not gonna repent of my sin. So I'd rather just not be there. Not the way to handle this. The way to handle this is to confront your sin to acknowledge that you are a sinner, to confess your sin to God and then rejoice that you have forgiveness in the body and blood of Christ. For the children in the room, this meal serves as a memorial. This meal serves for those who have placed their faith in Christ, been obedient to him, that they have salvation. So the, the, the meal for, for anyone is is for those who have placed their faith in Christ, repented of their sins, called upon him as Lord, those who have salvation, that's who the meal is for. Because if, if you haven't done that, then, then you're making a mockery out of the gospel because you're saying, I participate in the blood, I participate in the body, when you do not even know the Savior. And there are warnings that come with taking of the body and blood of Christ in an unworthy manner. So, for the children in the room, who have not had faith in Christ or growing up learning about the gospel, the Lord's Supper is intended for them to look around and for them to see those who are faithful in Christ taking the Lord's Supper and to say, what does this mean? What are you doing? What? You, you had a little snack at church. Why did you do that? What is this? Parents, tell your children what this means and say, you know, all the people that took the Lord's Supper today at church, let me tell you why they did that. Let me tell you why we did that. Does that make sense? There are some other issues to navigate there, and we'll, we'll have to talk about those at another time with children, but I just want you to know that our participation in this is instructive to everyone around you. Do you know that? We all drink of the same drink. We all eat of the same body and we rejoice in the fact that we have forgiveness from our God. So we wanna do, we wanna proclaim that together today. The Lord's Supper is a way that we proclaim that together. So I'm excited to take this meal with you today. Uh, practically speaking, um, as I started about 15 minutes ago telling you this, uh, we're gonna, uh, Jimmy's gonna stand over here and I'm gonna stand over here. And uh, as you come up, you're gonna take this piece of uh, bread and you're gonna break a piece off, okay? You can do that, it's okay. You get a big piece, you get a little piece, it's okay, all right? But what you're gonna do is we're all gonna break a piece off and we're all gonna take of the same bread because we belong to the same body, okay? And then you're gonna come and you're gonna get juice all from the same source as Jimmy pours it for you, why? Because we all drink from the same source who is Christ. And so we want that symbolism to be present as we participate in this together. So I'm going to pray for us and uh, 
Katie's going to play some music for us, and uh, then I want you to come and take the Lord's Supper today, uh, today with us, okay? So